Welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 875. There's three dimensions in life, the past, the present, and the future. The future, we have nothing to do with. We can't control it. We can't predict what's going to happen reliably. So it doesn't belong to us. The present does belong to us, and we should enjoy the present as much as we can. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, automotive enthusiasts. I'm revved up and so excited to introduce today's very special guest, Nick Dawes. Hey, Nick, are you buckled up and ready for a fun ride? I always buckle up, Mark. <laughs> good man, good man. Nick Dawes is the vice president of Special Collections and head of Automobilia at Heritage Auctions in New York. He has over 40 years in the business of antiques and is a specialist in bespoke mascots, especially by Rene Lalique. After growing up in England... He's lived in New York City since 1979 with his wife and following a career as an antiques dealer, auctioneer, author, and university professor, and a former auctioneer and department head at Sotheby's, Nick is the author of four standard works on decorative arts, most recently bespoke mascots, with photographer and past cars yeah guest Michael Furman. I have that book and I love it. It's fantastic. This definitive book on the subject includes Michael Furman's photographs of all Rene Lalique glass mascots and, of course, all the expertise that Nick has to share about those beautiful, beautiful works of art. Nick says he got into the automobile world through the radiator cap. I'd like to learn more about that. He is familiar to many from over 20 years of regular appearances as an expert appraiser on Antiques Roadshow for PBS. I love that show. It's great fun. So, Nick, I've told our listeners a little bit about you. Would you take a brief moment, share a little bit more about your career and an obvious passion for automobilia? Well, thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be on your show, and um, I've certainly enjoyed what you've done. Well, where do I start? I, I grew up in England, in the West Midlands of England, growing up in the 1960s. I grew up in a family that was not a wealthy family by any means. So the concept of a luxurious car, or for that matter, a new car, uh, was not something that I really ever experienced. I will tell you, though, that when you asked me to be on your show, I thought back about what was my favorite car of all time. And I think I have to go back to my childhood. I wasn't driving it, but my father bought himself a Humber. It was a Humber Super Snipe. Oh, wow. I don't know what year it was. I would imagine it was a nineteen mid-1950s model that he bought in the mid-60s. Probably paid nothing for it. It was the biggest car I'd ever seen, and it was really the first car I'd ever been in that had anything like a smell of luxury, you know? It was just a beautiful piece of engineering. So I think perhaps, you know, like Proust had, had the the little cake that he ate, and that was, um, you know, his, his taste of the past. I think when I smell the sort of leather interior of a car from that vintage, not an earlier car, but a 1950s, 60s car, and I sink into that sort of seat, it takes me back to my childhood. That's where I grew up, and um, the environment I grew up in was, was a very modest one. Cars were something you bought for a few pounds, you know? And then 
I was lucky. I got to uh, work in the museum world for a year or so where I met my beautiful wife, Rosemary, who was visiting from North America. And we settled here in New York and New Jersey, got married in 1979. And since then, I've been here and I've developed uh, a career in based around the world of antiques, which is really the only world I knew. I've been in the right place at the right time to work at the highest levels in the auction business. I currently work for Heritage, we're the third largest auctioneer in the world. I've worked for Sotheby's, I've worked for Phillips Auctions, and I spend much of my time as, as an independent antiques dealer, specializing in the work of Rene Lalique, which many of your listeners may know through the automobile mascots that he designed in the 1920s. But of course, his, his output and his career was much greater than that. Um, but through Lalique, I've been introduced really through the mascots, which is how I got in through the, through the, uh, the radiator cap, to some of the most elegant cars in the world and some of the most elegant car owners for that matter. You know, in the, uh, in the 1980s, I um, started a, a small shop in Carmel, California with a partner there. And over the years, uh, my partner, who was a, um, one of the first sponsors of the Concord d'Elegance of Pebble Beach, he and I worked together to put together some fabulous collections of mascots, mostly René Lalique mascots uh, that we were able to sell to collectors all over the world. So Pebble Beach has been a, a fairly big part of my, my life and career, at least once a year, every third weekend in August for the last 25 years years or so. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, this was my 30th year attending that week of fabulous cars and so forth. Well, we're going to learn a lot more about you and your involvement with Automobilia and Lalique and all the wonderful things you get to be around as we continue on this journey we call your life. But first, I always like to ask my guests for a success quote or a mantra. It's a nice way to get the inspirational tires turning here on Cars Yeah. So Nick, take the wheel. Well, that's a good one. Um, I love quotes. I, I tend to think of quotes from famous people as, as good mantras. So I'll start with one of my favorite quotes, which I believe is Ferdinand Porsche, who said, every time you get in your car, it should be like you take a little vacation. Mm -hmm. And I hope that's a direct quote, and it's, but I think it's pretty close. And that's certainly the way I feel. But I would extend that to say, through life, you should only do what you want to do. And that's a very big challenge, but I meet so many people who are not happy in their careers. They're not happy in what they do on a daily basis. And I find that so unfortunate, but I feel so fortunate myself to be in a career that I just enjoy. I love what I'm doing. I love handling objects. I love the challenge of, of finding out what things are. And I love dealing with things from the past. Let me give you one mantra. Okay. which is something I've used over and over in the classes that I teach. I've taught for 34 years now at New School University in New York as a, as a part-time professor. And I teach my students the following. There's three dimensions in life, the past, the present, and the future. I think we can all accept that. The future, we have nothing to do with. We can't control it. We can't predict what's going to happen reliably. So, it doesn't belong to us. The present does belong to us. And we should enjoy the present 
as much as we can. And most of my students who are 18-year-old kids living in New York, I tell them that if they're not enjoying the present right now, something's wrong. But what they don't realize, and I think a lot of others don't, is that the past belongs to us too. The past is much richer and deeper and bigger than the present. And unless we learn to own that, we will become, by definition, one-dimensional. And if you're one-dimensional, you're boring. So I think the secret of not being boring is to be equally comfortable with the past as you are with the present. And and that's kind of the way I I, I live my life. Very nicely said. I like that very, very much. Absolutely beautiful. And it certainly applies to old cars and antiques and things from the past that we We collect and make part of our lives, and certainly they enrich our lives for sure. Well, let's go back in time and talk about a story that instigated your passion for cars. Now, I know you're more of an automobilia guy than an automobile guy. We talked about that a little bit in our pre-show chat. And you also talked about that very unique car, at least unique to the United States, when you were a little boy that your father had from the 50s. But is there a pivotal moment in your life when you realize, you know what, these old things in life that revolve around cars have some real meaning to me? In other words, that you became a car guy? Wow, that's a good question. I'm not sure I could pinpoint that moment. But when I started dealing with the work of René Lalique in in a serious way, which was perhaps in the early 80s, I I wrote a book on the subject. My first book is called Lalique Glasses, published in 1986. So I was researching it through the early 80s. And René Lalique designed hundreds, thousands, in fact, of objects in glass throughout his career, including just 30 ornaments that could be hood ornaments, car mascots, radiator stoppers, as the French call them. And the first time I handled a couple of these, I realized just how special they are. First of all, if you've ever seen one, they are exquisite things. But secondly, the concept of taking an ornament and making it in glass to fit on the front of a car is a very innovative thing indeed. Lalique designed a concept around it, a system whereby the ornament can be lit up through a light hidden in the mounting that, um, as you can imagine, at night created a spectacular vision. You know, stick this thing on the front of your car and tearing through the French countryside in 1927. I mean, it's amazing. And And I thought about the innovation of that when I first held it. And and I think if you hold a a Lalique mascot, you have to think of it in its context. And that really struck me as how brilliant this guy was. And if he could do that, if he could think at that level on something as relatively mundane as a car mascot, then, you know, what else could he do? And, And I fell in love with him and his concepts and his standards of design, I think with these objects, they, they really taught me how great they are. Mm. And, and, I, and I've, I've followed their progress. If you go to great shows like, like the Concorde d'Elegance at, at Pebble or you go to Amelia or you go to even to Hershey where I'm going this week, you will see these ornaments occasionally placed on cars. And they, even today, they draw great attention. People love them. But you see one lit up at night. And you've never seen anything like that. I mean, that is just off the scale in terms of being an automotive accessory. It's the ultimate thing. 
Absolutely. Absolutely brilliant. Well, Nick, let's take a look at some of the roads you've driven down. You're in a very unique business dealing with antiques, which I'm sure that business is fraught with ups and downs, all the things that can happen. So I'd love for you to share a career failure or big, big challenge that you face. Kind of walk us through that situation. But better yet, what did that situation teach you to help you move forward in your life and in your career? Well, that's a great question, Mark. And um, let me think about that for a moment. I would say the biggest challenge I've faced, and, and, and I've had a long career which has had its share of ups and downs, perhaps the biggest challenge is the general decline in popularity in what we might call conventional antiques and conventional antiques dealing. Anyone who's listening will know there are main, much fewer antique shops and antiques dealers today than there were certainly in our parents' lifetime or even you know the generation before that. Mm-hmm. The industry has kind of ticked down. And there are a number of reasons for this. The typical antique dealer who survives will blame the auctioneers for that. Oh, the auctioneers took over. They started inviting private people into the auction rooms. And then other people blame the internet more recently. And I think it's fair to say that both of those factors have impacted the conventional antiques dealer with an antique shop relying on people driving up and, and coming in and buying something. So I sensed this happening fairly early on in my career, more so with the auction business kind of taking over the role of the, of the antiques dealer. And we can apply this to many other things. The car dealer has certainly lost his or her position to a large extent to the car auctioneer these days who are the, the stars of the, of the you know, car business. Mm-hmm. So what I did was, um, and I began this in the, uh, in the late 1980s, I started running my own auction. I realized that um, if my clients are buying at auction, uh, it's hard for me to make any kind of money there or any kind of profit unless I had more of a dog in that fight. So I ran my own auctions, which I did for a period of 10 years or so. And that taught me a great deal about the auction business. It taught me a great deal about every aspect of it. I I sort of did it all. I would do my own shipping and packing and handling and all that and all the paperwork and the accounting. So that's one challenge that I kind of saw coming. And I think there's a lesson there. Mm -hmm. If you see a wind of change, you want to get in that wind. You want to go with it. You don't want it blowing in your face. Right. And the second primary challenge was internet sales. The internet has revolutionized so many industries and it's made so many things more accessible. And this can be a very good thing, you know, in the world of antiques, collecting in general, whether it's automobilia or automobiles for that matter or anything else. If there's something you're looking for, you can kind of press a couple of buttons and find it. I have a a little convertible when when it's not being driven by one of my three sons and if I can ever track it down, but it was missing a um, a little a little hook that holds the um, the the, uh, the visor on, mm-hmm. and um, it was kind of annoying because because the the visor kept flipping, and I thought, well, I'll just buy one, and I go on eBay, and there it is. I bought it for nine dollars, and I had it the next day. I you know. know, it's incredible, and, and and you couldn't, you just couldn't do that at one point. So so that accessibility and that. The, the kind of massive amount of things that are available is a um, it's great if you want to buy something, but if you're selling, it, it makes things very difficult. The supply of so many things now exceeds the demand. 
Yes. And again, I saw that coming to a certain extent and was able to steer around that by looking for things and trying to deal with things that you actually can't find through the internet mm-hmm. unless uh, you're really lucky or, or really, really good at it. Sure. So, so dealing with things that are a little um, more exclusive, higher up, is, uh, <clears throat> is one way around. Yeah, it is uh, quite extraordinary how the Internet has changed things. There's a website that I'm sure you're aware of, and I came across it years ago, and I enjoy it, called First Dibs. And uh, the amount of objects, old objects you can find on that site, very high-end. Most of the things are very high-end, expensive, I should say. Uh, I don't know a lot about antiques, but whether or not they're high-end in the the caliber of quality, but I know they look expensive. But yeah, uh, there's just so many different ways to go out and buy things these days. And I think your example with the car is a great one. If you need something, boy, it's at your fingertips on these little devices we carry in our hands. So it's quite extraordinary. But you're right. When you see your industry changing, you better set some different sales because if you don't, it will overtake you quite rapidly. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, let's shift gears and go to the other end of the spectrum. I'd love for you to share a time when you had a career aha moment. I like to say it's when those beautiful headlights come on and kind of illuminate a new path for you. Is there an aha moment in your career that you could share? Yeah, that's a good one, too. I think it has to do with writing books. I wrote my first book in 1986. Now, if you can cast your mind back then, over 30 years ago, there really was no Internet. I mean, it was very much a a nascent thing and, and just beginning but there was none of the social media that we take for granted today. And it helped me, and, and the book was well distributed and sold well and so on, and it got me a certain amount of reputation within you know, the circle that I was writing in, collecting La Ligue and a little beyond that. Then I wrote another book three years later, and then two more since then. And the last two have been within the, um, very much within the internet era. And of course, one of the things I realized was that if something becomes archived in any way uh, on the internet, it's there forever and ever, amen. Mm-hmm. And, and to a certain extent, you can control that, and to a certain extent, you can't. We're all, we're all at the mercy of that. But it made me realize quite early on, as I, as I saw what was happening, with internet archiving. Not so much, I'm not talking about social media, which is something I don't use, by the way, but internet archiving, something's there, mm-hmm. and it's there, and it stays there, and people can find it. The more you put in a very positive light, the more credentials you establish, the more your credentials grow by extension, without really having to do anything. So if you write a book, you make sure that it's well publicized. If you do an event, if you give a lecture, if you do something positive, you make sure that it's well established and somehow somebody enters it into some site. And I I realized this, I think, very early on in the internet world. And um, I think there's a lesson there for everyone. Very much so. Uh, That's why I think in some way, at least I hope in some way with these shows I'm doing, uh, sharing, inspiring people like yourself with my listeners and the fact that they will be there forever, long past since I'm gone. They'll be found somewhere, somehow, that people can look back and enjoy these things and and listen to them and uh, be uh, entertained by them in some way and educated Uh, Absolutely. And we're going to talk about books a little bit more in a minute, but I'd love for you first to share 
a proudest career moment that you've had, something that really stands out for you. Is there one? Ooh, proudest career moment. You know, I was actually talking about that earlier today uh, with a friend who's visiting from Europe, and he's an engineer. I gave him an auction catalog that I had put together, I think, four years ago. I, uh, I've done, through my career, I've probably compiled hundreds of auction catalogs. You know, the auction business, we say it's like producing a Broadway show that only runs for one night. You know, you, you, you work so long, months working on this auction, and it happens until all over. You're not just producing your show, you're writing a book. You know, the auction catalog itself is a book, and it, you make one edition of it, and that's all sold, and that's gone. There's a lot of work goes into an auction, and I've done hundreds of them. Most of them have been within my, my areas of specialty, which we call generally decorative arts. I did one just two weeks ago that was mostly automobilia, automotive things. It's fabulous sale. But about four years ago, I was invited to go to look at a collection. It was a museum of a gentleman who had worked for in his early years, the Ford Motor Company, as uh, an industrial engineer. He was very talented. He grew up in that part of Michigan, and he had invented a particular way of making, I think it was a gasket of some sort, which he then developed on his own and made a family business out of, very successful, still making it. Mm -hmm. But this fellow devoted much of his energy to collecting engineering objects, models, a lot of model cars, some of which were mechanical. But he also had model boats and planes and trains and a lot of stationary engine, model engines that worked either through steam or some other system. Incredible things. I went to see the museum. I was contacted by his, his daughter who said, um, you know, I've got this museum. I think we have to sell it and close it. Will you come and have a look? In, in the moment I walked in, one of the first things I saw he had a fully operational model, one quarter scale of a Stanley steamer. Now, I, where the heck he got this, I don't know. It was basically scratch built. He also had a couple of full-size vehicles, but almost everything was a model. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I have to deal with this. I have, to, I have to get this deal. It was competitive with other auctioneers. Anyway, I cut a long story short, I got the deal and... Um, I spent the next uh, several weeks cataloging everything. And, and I'm not an engineer. I assume that much of it would be well documented because it was a museum and so on. It really wasn't. So a lot of it I had to start from scratch and figure out what kind of engine is this. I met so many people in the world of model making, the world of engineering, and the, wor the world of automobiles who helped me identify things. I learned a tremendous amount about it. Um, and came up with what I think is an exemplary catalog. It's a catalog of, we called it the Glenn Reed auction. Glenn Reed was the gentleman who put it all together. Mm -hmm. And uh, we sold it at Heritage. It was 100% sold in the end, very successful sale, well over a million dollars. And, and I think of all the things I've ever done in the auction business, it was by far the thing I'm proudest of because it was outside my, my sphere to some extent in terms of expertise. So um, I had to learn a good deal. And you have to get it right, you know. If you're saying this is a particular engine or a particular train or a particular car and you get it wrong, 
you get a lot of flack. You yes. know what I mean? Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's always some guy says, that's not, you know, <laughs> that's not a Shelby. Right, you know? right. So you've got to get everything absolutely right. And um, that's not 1955. It's 57. So, but we got it right. And um, I still look back on that catalog. I love it. I love the images from it. And um, that's, that's my proudest moment. Well, it sounds like it for sure. Very, very nice. Well, let's have a little bit of fun. I know you live in New York City. A lot of New Yorkers don't have cars, but going further back maybe in your life, what was your first special car? And maybe you could share a memory you have about that vehicle. Sure. Well, the first car I had any kind of ownership in, I owned it 50-50 with a guy um, that I had met. I was living in Holland at the time. This was in 77, I think. And I met a guy in Amsterdam who was Canadian, and he told me that uh, he had just bought a Volkswagen camper, and he was intending to drive it to Afghanistan, and would I like to go with him? And, you know, if you think back to those days, this seemed like a very sensible thing to do. I, I wouldn't want to do it today. But when you're young, so to cut a long story short, I, 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 I had earned enough money working in Holland to do the travels that I wanted to do. And uh, I bought this Volkswagen camper with him. And I, I didn't drive very well at the time. So he taught me to drive in a parking lot in northern France somewhere. <laughs> and um, I figured out how to drive this thing. And we ended up driving it uh, all through Europe. I had a spectacular trip and if you've ever driven a Volkswagen camper it's got to be the most resilient car in the world you can you can I know you can because we did it several times you can crash this thing take it off the road a number of times and it's fine <laughs> it seems to just bounce back yeah and of course you can you can live in it and, and you become part of this machine you know it's, sure. it's very much a much more than a car if you if you're living in the thing you become very emotion, emotionally attached to it. So I think this vehicle, which I parted company with somewhere in Turkey, he, he carried on going east and I came back to go uh, into, the, into the Middle East. I, I think I developed a great attachment to that car. And I, ever since then, by the way, I've wanted to own one. But I've just never had the right uh, opportunity to kind of pull the trigger and buy a Volkswagen camper. I, I've looked at the new ones. But yeah, yeah, they don't have the same character. Well, we all know what the VW vans have done as far as auction prices and cost prices these days. Some are absolutely crazy. But uh, yeah, those old VWs, they do have their own personality about them. Well, how about a vehicle that you've owned and let go? Is there one that you wish you could have back? Well, I've never got as attached to a car to the point where I would say, I wish I had that back. The very first car that I owned, I would like, I, I do regret what happened. It was a Datsun 510, and my wife and I were living in an apartment in Hoboken, New Jersey, and we decided, um, in those days, you could easily have a car and take it and park it in Hoboken and drive it into Manhattan, stuff you, it's hard to do today. And we owned this beautiful little orange Datsun 510, and I loved it until one day when I got up, and it was gone. Oh, so, no. Oh, no. So, and, and it's a car that it would never be a, a car of any monetary value whatsoever. But I think because it was my wife and I's first, and I, it was such a beautiful thing to drive. It's the one car I regret not having anymore. 
Well, let's talk about what has you excited and fired up today. I know you're getting ready, uh, as we're recording this, getting ready to leave for Hershey, which is an annual pilgrimage. Pilgrimage, if I could speak. <laughs> uh, it's an annual trek, I'll say, for uh, many, many people. It's been a long time since I've been to Hershey, but a wonderful uh, venue and event. Uh, what are you working on that has you very excited and fired up these days? Well, I'm going to tell you what I did two weeks ago. And this is something I'm going to, I'm going to meet someone at Hershey tomorrow and talk in more detail about it. Mm -hmm. But two weeks ago, I was in uh, northern France in, in um, Alsace to visit the Lalique factory, which is something I do periodically to, to learn a certain level of understanding. There's the Lalique factory and the Lalique museum. And while I was in the area, I was with a gentleman who had been invited to the Bugatti factory in Mulhouse, which is fairly nearby. It's a, it's, it's a short drive away. And he asked me if I'd like to go to the Bugatti factory with him and see how Bugattis are assembled. And that's pretty much a no brainer in terms of how you answer it. <laughs> of course. Yeah. And I figured, you know, I figured we'd go in and, and they'd say, here's the Bugattis, you know, have a cup of coffee and, and here's a little thing about it. And thank you very much. And, but it wasn't like that at all. I spent the entire day at Ettore Bugatti's restored mansion. Um, the chateau is all there, fully restored by Volkswagen Group, who own it, together with these magnificent outbuildings that have all been there for 100 years since, since Ettore Bugatti's time. I saw, I learned everything there is to learn about Bugatti from the company historian. I saw some Type 35s. I saw some older things in that are there. It's not really a museum, but there are a few incredible things there. And then we went to see the Chiron being assembled. Mm. The, the parts of the Chiron are built all over the world, basically a lot of them in Italy and parts of Germany. And, and they bring them all in and then they assemble them in this, um, in this plant that's it's not like any automobile plant you've ever seen. It, it looks like a a kind of it looks like something between an advanced hospital and the Starship Enterprise. You know? <laughs> yes. The technology is off the scale. Everything is absolutely immaculate. There's more titanium in this building than you can imagine. So I watched this whole thing. I watched every aspect of the car going together, saw the scale of the engine, uh, was given a guided tour by a Formula Grand Prix driver. And he then takes us to see the Chiron, and we each get to test drive. Oh my goodness! Now I don't know many. I don't know many of your listeners have, have test drove with a former Formula One Grand Prix driver, uh, winner at Le Mans. Wow! How many of you guys get to drive <laughs> a Chiron, the fastest you know production car in the world, right. and and the most beautiful? Okay. So this is something that is unforgettable experience for me. And I'm meeting someone and I told them, I said, look, you know, my client, the guy I was with, maybe he'll buy one one day if he, if he you know, wants to spend the $3 million that it costs. Yes. I, I said, I'm not going to buy one of these Bugattis unless something very strange happens in my life. And they said, look, we like you. you we're going to give you this whole thing. And as far as we're concerned, you'll be our ambassador. Ah. And I understand that, you know? Yes. It's not hard to be a brand ambassador for Bugatti, frankly. Of course. So 
I'm going to meet someone uh, who's um, a lot further up the, the scale than I am in many ways or in terms of automobiles. But I can talk to him about that. Wow. And he hasn't done it. And, and that's a, a special, very special thing. Oh, Nick, next time you go to Europe, if you need someone to carry your bags, shine your shoes, uh, I'm your guy. Just, you've got my number. Give me a call. Oh my gosh. Uh, you took me right there. I, that sounds absolutely brilliant. Like so much fun. Wow. Thank you for, for taking us all there. Oh, well, let's talk about a very unique question I have for you today. And that is a very introspective question. If Nick was an automobile, what would he be? And why? Wow. Let me think on that one. You know, I, I would not be, I would not be a Bugatti Chiron. I, I'm not, I'm not that elegant. I'm not that well put together. I am not that fast. Nor are any of us for that matter. <laughs> yes. And I, I'm not that extravagant. <laughs> so let's take down from that. I, I wouldn't be a Datsun 510 either. You know, mm-hmm. I like to think I, I'm somewhere beyond that. I go back to my father's Humber Super Snipe, and it was a relatively simple car, solid, uh, not necessarily the most elegant and beautiful car you've ever seen, but 100% British and built in such a way that this thing was ready for anything. Leather upholstery of the finest type and little features on it that just kind of made you smile. Mm-hmm. It had one foot in the past, this thing, but it was at the same time somewhat modern. Right. And I like a car that has some reference to the past. Um, so I, I'm not really sure where I'd go with that, Mark, but um, <laughs> it certainly would not be a sports car. It would not be a uh, convertible. It would not be anything that's based on speed or, or um, what you might call streamlining. It would not be an old beat-up junker either. Um, I do have a, um, a fondness for interwar British cars. Mm-hmm. I have a fondness for a certain kind of racing car, having said that it wouldn't be a speed car. But I think if I was a car, I'd be something very comfortable from the 1960s. Um, is that close enough? I think you uh, answered that pretty well. And we could stay with the Humber Super Snipe because that's such a unique car. I think they were built until 66 or 67, something like that. The Series 2, I believe it was. And I think they started production in the mid to late 30s. Very unique car. That car has a very character, I would say, about it. Look, it almost has a face to it in a way. so uh, Good way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Well, Nick, up next is the last lap. But before we put the pedal to the metal in that Humber Super Snipe, Let's say thank you to today's Cars Yeah sponsors. If you own collector cars and still have a little bit of money left over, congratulations. You're ahead of most people, but what should you do with the money you don't spend on cars? Talk to Chris Kimball, Certified Financial Planner Practitioner. For over 20 years, he's been helping people just like you and me with their financial planning and investments. And he's a car guy too. Call 253-722-PLAN. Or you can view his website at www.chrisvkimble.com. Make sure your investments are running on all eight cylinders, or 12, or 16. Securities through Money Concepts Capital Corp. member, Finra Sipic. Do you know the best way to protect your vehicle, both the exterior and the interior, 
is with a car cover. I've been using Covercraft car covers since 1975. That's right, 1975. It's a fast, easy, and inexpensive way to keep your vehicle looking new. Covercraft has been manufacturing premium quality exterior and interior covers for over 50 years with a stellar reputation for durability and design. They're the world's largest manufacturer of custom patterned vehicle covers that are crafted to fit over 80,000 patterns and growing. They are the only cover I'll put on my vehicles. You can choose from a wide variety of fabrics, styles, colors, and more. From full cover designs for factory to custom-made vehicles, plus convertible top covers, trucks, truck cab coolers, motorcycles, scooters, ATVs, trailers, campers, personal watercraft, and a wide variety of custom features. Covercraft is the right choice. Learn more today at Covercraft.com and tell them Mark sent you. That's Covercraft.com. Okay, Nick, we are back, and we're entering what I call the last lap, and I'm going to ask you to fire off some very quick blips of the throttle answers. So here we go. What's the best automotive advice you've ever received? Don't drive too fast. <laughs> Most definitely. After we just talked about a Chiron. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so went down that roadway. Would you share one of your personal habits you believe has helped contribute to your successes over the years? I make my information available. My, I, I make my knowledge available free of charge, almost exclusively. And um, th- there are limits to that. But I found that helps in, in many ways professionally. Definitely, definitely. Especially somebody that has so much knowledge as you have. Now, is there a resource out there that you particularly enjoy that you think the Cars Yell listeners should be aware of? Ooh, um, a resource. You know, I, I would have to plug my own company, Heritage Auctions. Perfect. It's very easy. HA.com. Can't beat that. And one of the things that we do, first of all, we sell literally thousands of things every week. A lot of them are collectibles with a leader in sports memorabilia, for instance, if you like that. Everything we sell is archived, and access to that is free of charge. So you can see about a decade now of sales of objects of every description, see what they've sold for and how they're described and everything. And HA.com Heritage Auctions is a – I use it every day, and I know uh, we have over a million clients, many of whom do the same thing. Well, it's a beautiful site. I love your website. It's really, really nice. And scrolling through it earlier today, I see everything from fine wines to silver objects, watches, manuscripts, artwork. I mean, oh my gosh, I could spend uh, hours and hours there. So I think that's a great resource for people. Now, if I could arrange for you to have a drink with anyone in the automotive industry or field, living or deceased, who would that person be? I think I might know who it might be. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, well, who do you think it would be, Mark? Let me ask you that. Well, I'm thinking, I'm thinking Mr. Lalik would be a nice man to sit down with and talk to him about his artwork and his design. I love his work. Who would it be for you? Wow. Um, I can't beat that. I mean, I don't think of him <laughs> as being primarily in the automotive world, but absolutely. And I, I'll mention him. And let me tell you a story. Rene Lalique was friends with Ettore Bugatti. Mm. The two of them used to meet in a uh, in a restaurant in Alsace. If I was going to have a dinner, I would sit a drink. I hope it would turn into dinner. Yes. I'd want to be with those two guys. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Two, two absolute geniuses 
in the world of design who happen to know each other, happen to be effectively neighbors. And we know they sat in a restaurant. I know the restaurant. Uh, That's where I'd want to be. That would be a magnificent evening that I think either of us, if we were there, would not want that to end. Yes, that would be absolutely spectacular. Now, how about a book? Now, I know that uh, this book that you produced with Michael Furman, and Michael's been a guest here on the show, and we promoted many of the books he's done, but the, the book Bespoke Mascots, it sits on my shelf of all my automotive books. It's an absolutely brilliant book. So I'll make sure I put a link to that to Coach Built Press on your show notes page. But is there another book that you think our listeners should enjoy? Well, first of all, thank you for that. And I have to give a plug for Michael Furman. He is the finest photographer of automotive anything in the world. There is no question about that. He is fantastic. Yeah. He's unbelievable. And he was generous enough to invite me to work on bespoke mascots with him. It's his book. I mean, every page is the finest photograph you've ever seen. I wrote the text. And um, he made me co-author. And I say in the acknowledgments, thank you, Michael, for letting me ride in the front seat. (laughs) Uh, He was very generous about that. But if I was to mention one other book, Bespoke Mascots is effectively volume two Mm -hmm. of a Michael Furman series, the first of which is called Automotive Jewelry. Yes. And it deals mostly with um, badges and ornaments that go into cars, as, not including the hood ornaments or the car mascot. So I would say if you're going to get bespoke mascots, and I hope you will, get the first volume as well. Oh, yeah. That book is absolutely brilliant. And yeah, I just had John Anikas on the show about three weeks ago. He did a book with uh, Michael Rule Britannia, another guest, uh, mm-hmm. Donald Osborne, his book about transatlantic style he did with Michael. I mean, I've got all of Michael's books. They're just, uh, they're so nice. And I, I'm just actually giving away some books this week. Randy Leffingwell's book, Porsche, 70 Years, that Michael took some of the uh, grander pictures in as well. So, yeah, very aware of Michael's work. He does brilliant, brilliant work. Well, listeners, you can find links to all these great resources Nick has been so kind to share on his show notes page on the Cars yeah website. Just go to CarsYeah.com, type in Nick Dawes, D-A-W-E-S, and that page will pop up with all these great links, including his website, which you really need to go visit. It's so much fun. There is so many cool things to look at there. It's brilliant. All right, Nick, we're up to the checkered flag, and this last question could be a real doozy. I'm going to buy you any cool collector car in the world today. doesn't matter what it costs. Don't worry about that, but I want you to enjoy it, and I want you to drive it, so maybe take it outside of the city into the up into the northern part of the state of New York and the eastern part where the roads are so beautiful, and this time of year in the fall, the leaves are changing, so it would be a wonderful drive. What would that car be and why? Okay. There's a little bit of me, as a little bit of everyone, who is James Bond, so it has to be an Aston Martin DB5. Well, that would be fun, and you, you surprised me a little bit. You know, I don't know you real, real well, but I've certainly got to know you better today. But, oh, DB5, James Bond, yeah. Well, what is it, aside from it's a British car, of course, and you're a British man, so that makes a world of sense, and every guy loves James Bond. Secretly, they want to be that guy because, you know, nothing can do him harm. But what is it about the DB5 that you love so much? Well, I'll tell you, it's, I've never driven a DB5. I don't think I've ever sit in, sat in one. I've seen them. I think it's a nostalgic thing. You know, I grew up watching the James Bond films as a boy, and I've kind of grown up with them, as many of us have. Um, 
But the first ones, the earliest ones, of course, are the best. And when I was a boy, maybe I think I was 10, I got as a gift. Actually, no, I bought it myself. I saved up the money and I bought the little James Bond car. Ah, yes. The little one that you buy. I think it was a dinky toy or something. And, and it had all the features, you know, it had the little machine guns. And, the, and I played with this thing. I played the heck out of it, the ejector seat. Mm-hmm. So to me, that car, it's not a car, it's a toy. It's something of my formative years, my early years. It's something that I've admired all my life. And I've had a lot of fun out of, even though I've never driven one. So um, I think that answers the question. I think it answers it nicely. Yeah, I had uh, the same model. I think Corgi made those, if I remember right. Yes, it was Cor- It was Corgi. Yeah, yeah from the 60s. And uh, I believe in a box somewhere, I still have mine. I even had the little ejector seat where the little guy flew out the top. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure uh, poked me in the eye a few times when he was racing across the kitchen floor. Ah, uh, very nice choice. Well, Nick, you have taken us on a very nice ride today. I've really enjoyed getting to know you better. I want to thank you for sharing your your automotive and automobilia journey with me and the Car Show listeners. Is there a little parting piece of wisdom or guidance you might offer us before you drive off into the sunset in that Aston Martin DB5? Hmm. Um, well, I've already said don't drive too fast. And the second <laughs> yes. thing I'll say is don't drive too close to the guy in front of you. <laughs> yes. Don't tailgate. Keep your distance, <laughs> especially if that guy's driving a DB5. You do not want to run into the back of that guy. <laughs> For sure. And remind us again, the best way for our listeners to follow along in your world and what you're doing. Sure. I'm a vice president of Heritage Auctions. We're all over the country, all over the world, actually. But it's very simple. HA.com. There you go. And you go there and uh, you'll get lost in it. I guarantee you. If you like art and object, whatever you like, you'll find it there. Oh, there's so many things that are enticing there. I encourage you listeners to Check out the website. Very easy to find, ha.com. Go to the website that I've created for Nick on the Cars Yeah website, or I should say the show notes page, and you'll find links to it there. It's a wonderful site, so much fun, and you will get lost in it as I have as well. Lots of fun eye candy there, beautiful things to read and learn about, and if you're so fortunate, purchase. Nick, thanks for being so generous today with your time and expertise and for sharing your experiences with me and the Cars Yeah listeners. Until you and I talk again, I hope you have a grand time at Hershey, and I'll see you down the road. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure's all mine. What's every automotive enthusiast's dream? To design and build that perfect garage. My friends at Metron Garage are a group of creative talents who've combined their passion for cars with their careers in architecture. Their service includes unique garage design, and state-of-the-art fabrication. They will create the coolest custom garage for you and your vehicles. Metron Garage's system features fully engineered commercial-grade material and structural framing that's stronger than traditional construction. Their designs are pre-engineered to meet your building codes for fast, bolt-together construction. With over 25 years of experience, you'll see a 3D rendering to visualize your custom garage and the final structure will fulfill all your storage needs. Contact Metron Garage today and begin realizing your dream garage. Go to metrongarage.com. That's metrongarage.com. Garage is built for discerning enthusiasts. Where it's not just a garage, it's where your dream garage comes true. 
Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah.